Welcome back to the Alpha Females Invest podcast. Two females working in finance, searching for alpha. My name's Emily. And my name is Clooney. And together we bring diversified perspectives from the buy and sell side of the finance world. As usual, any information disclosed in this podcast is not financial advice. All opinions reflect those of the individuals. And of course, you should always read the PDS and talk to a financial advisor who can consider your personal circumstances before you make an investment. This week, we have Michael Levin, the founder of Emmy, on the show. Over the last 15 years, Michael has helped direct hundreds of millions of dollars into carbon-abating activities, influencing carbon policies, as well as creating and trading millions of carbon credits, including the very first ACCU in 2012. Michael started Emmy four years ago when he realised the financial market wasn't moving fast enough to mitigate climate change and had massively mispriced exposure. So he set up solving that problem in a way the market could understand and use. Given carbon is having an impact on the carbon markets, Michael is coming up with a solution to help the market price the carbon risk. And on top of that, as if this isn't enough, he is a CFA charter holder too. So we thought he would be the perfect guest to join us today. So welcome, Michael. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks a lot for having me, guys. So, Michael, just to give you a little bit of background, every time we start an episode, we always like to start and end it with two key questions. So, our first question is, can you tell us your most embarrassing career moment? Yep, <laughs> I can. You did actually give me a little bit of a heads up on this one. So, I, I tried to think about, I was like, oh, I could go for the sanitized one, and but this one, it happened overseas. I went to my boss's wedding in Nice three or four years ago. We went to a Michelin, I think it was Michelin two-star restaurant, you know, actually in Ayers, half an hour out of Nice, lunchtime wedding, fantastic views, you know, for everyone's in like full suits and everything. And then we went back for the reception, the nighttime reception on one of the five-star hotel rooftops for, you know, drinks and canapes and what have you. And the whole, the whole company was there, like the whole executive from the company was there, including the owner and his wife. And I was talking to the owner's wife a little bit later and there was no one swimming in the pool and it was like roped off and we started saying who could hold their breath the longest. And I was like, I reckon I can do two laps of that pool like holding the breath underwater. One thing led to the other and the next thing I knew I was like swimming underwater in just my underwear thinking to myself, well, this is going to be amazing. Everyone's going to be really on top of this. I did, I did. I did one lap underwater and then turned underwater and did the other one completely like got to the end like out of breath thinking I'm going to come to raising applause it's dead silent and the only thing I could hear was the French like staff going, get out of the pool. And I'm just like, oh, dear, I may have, I may have miscalculated this one. But um, oh, I no. yeah, lived, lived to tell the tale. Not quite the Olympic applaud you thought it might have given. Yeah, no, not quite. But um, I think everybody did find it quite amusing. But yeah, I was just like, maybe miscalculated that one a little bit. But, you yeah, know, no harm, no foul. <laughs> On the positive, I mean, sounds like a great wedding. Oh, it was a fantastic wedding. Yeah, it's like one of the best, you know. I was like, I made sure we got over to that one because it was like, you know, first of all, you're two Michelin star restaurant at Ayers overlooking Nice and then you drive back to Nice and five star hotel. I thought it's going to be tough to top those ones. And finished off with a classy uh, end show. <laughs> exactly. That's it, you know, just a nice little refreshing dip afterwards. I felt amazing in the morning. <laughs> Oh, that's classic. We've had a real variety of um, embarrassing moments on the show so far. It's quite funny to hear. So let's get back to talking about carbon, which of course is your specialty. So talk us through the carbon market and how it's relevant to firstly the planet, but also then investors. Yeah. So the carbon markets, 
like at a holistic level, um, the carbon market is all about trying to price an externality that's currently not priced in our system. So when we think about climate change, climate change is basically the result of too many tons of CO2 or greenhouse gas emissions going off into the atmosphere. And that's effectively because people aren't paying for them. Um, they can just do it for free. So what we need to try and do is we need to internalize that externality. And the way to do that is to try and price it. Now, there's lots of different ways that you can try and price it. Some people have tried coming up with a carbon tax where it's just like, you know, every single ton of CO2 that you emit, you have to basically pay to be able to emit a ton or you can put regulation in. But of course, that's just pricing. And if you get the price wrong, you might under or over, you know, if it's too high, you put too much pressure on the system. And if it's too low, you don't reduce enough tons of CO2. Where the carbon market in its purest form comes at is it's about saying, we don't know what the price needs to be, but we know what the limit of tons of CO2 or carbon emission needs to be. So what we can do, and this is what the Kyoto Protocol tried doing, was let's start with a global limit on tons of CO2. Let's make this a simplistic version. Let's say there's only 2,000 tons of CO2 that can be emitted. We're only then going to release 2,000 effectively carbon permits into the market. And if you want to emit a ton of CO2, you basically have to go and buy one of these permits and acquit it to the regulator. What that then means is you then start getting supply and demand pressure because, you know, if everybody that wants to emit goes, well, hang on, we need a permit to be able to emit. But obviously, if there's more than 2,000 tonnes of emissions within the market we've just described, the price will then start going up and up. And then all of a sudden, if your cost to emit is then higher than the economic value that you gain from emitting, you'll then go, well, hang on a minute, marginal cost, marginal benefit is actually better for me not to emit. So you won't. And then that's how we make sure that we stay within the 2,000 ton limit. That's the general premise. There's lots of different iterations that we can have, but that's the general idea. So it's about trying to put a price on carbon. But I guess people talk about letting the animal instincts of the market actually drive the lowest cost of abatement and allowing trade to occur so that we do get the most efficient form of abatement and decarbonisation. That's the theory. The world's not perfect. And as we've seen over the last 30 years, we haven't quite got there. There's been a few different iterations of markets. There's carbon offsets that have come in. And so that's the idea. So if we got it perfect, we'd know what the science is telling us. We'd have a limit on emissions that the world can basically take to get us to a certain degree of warming, which would then mean for the planet's perspective, we know where we're going. We know to get to one and a half degrees, we can only emit so many more tons of CO2. We're confident on that. And then that can then give investors the confidence, well, hang on a minute, we can then understand the supply and demand mechanics of the carbon market on a global perspective. We can then start understanding what the costs are for a company to emit and you know the value they get from each extra ton of emissions. We can then understand what they're you know, baking the cost of carbon now and into the future, work out basically what activities they can continue to do and which ones they can't. And then they can start actually pricing all of this in. But you need all this perfect information to be able to do that. So that's the theory. We're not quite there yet. And so that global limit you've just spoken about, is that why a lot of industries and corporations have a carbon budget? Yeah. So that global limit is, that's the idea of effectively, yeah, it's a carbon budget. So when we talk around carbon budget, it's effectively total tons of CO2 that can be emitted for the rest of time. So a lot of people talk around carbon budgets, but sometimes there's this confusion between carbon budgets and yearly carbon targets. Often a company will say our carbon budget is by 2030, we're going to halve our emissions. That's not actually a carbon budget. That's a carbon target because if you keep your emissions constant for the first nine years and then 2030, you drop by half, 
you're actually using a lot more of the carbon budget up versus if you go on a straight line trajectory. It's actually better to drop emissions earlier because it means we use less of the carbon budget. But yes, in general, that is why people start talking that language. And how does that tie into the Paris Agreement and and what does it mean to be net zero in the context of a carbon budget? Yeah, so the Paris Agreement is basically, it's the iteration of what was the Kyoto Protocol back in the early 90s, which was then Copenhagen. I don't even, did we even, no, we did get an agreement out of Copenhagen, but it wasn't very strong um, and I don't think much happened. And then Paris. So Paris is basically the thing that is replacing Kyoto Protocol. What Paris is trying to do is we got consensus globally to say when they started, they said we want to limit warming to two degrees. And there's the IPCC and there's lots of global climate scientists that have come out and said, if we want to limit warming to two degrees, we can only emit so many more tonnes of CO2 for the rest of the world's existence. And, you know, there's lots of modelling. It's not perfect. There's a bandwidth. There's a proportion of if there's 50% chance of meeting two degrees warming or restricting to two degrees warming, it's between X and Y. I can't remember the numbers off my top of my head. But what the science has then worked out is at two degrees warming, there's actually still quite a lot of detrimental things start happening. And if we wanted to be really safe in system change, that's where this one and a half degree world has come in. So Paris did start at a two degree, but everyone now says best efforts is actually the one and a half degree temperature alignment we need to go for. And obviously the difference between a two and one and a half from a carbon budget is quite a lot tighter And so then this is when we start talking around net zero. And this, when people talk around carbon budgets, when people talk about we're going to be net zero by 2050, which is what the idea is to restrict warming to one and a half degrees, that's a target. Now, that's in a way making an assumption that we have this straight line trajectory of where we are now. So the globe on CO2 emissions is, depending on the accounting rules, if you're including all greenhouse gas emissions or just industrial carbon emissions, it's somewhere between... 37 to 51 billion tonnes of greenhouse gas. Just take that that there's different ways to account for different types of greenhouse gases. If we straight line that down roughly to be effectively zero emission economy in 2050, there's a reasonable chance that we will be able to keep it within close to one and a half degrees. However, if we don't straight line and we take five more years, then we basically stay at that, you know, let's say 37 billion tonnes. We actually have to go net zero effectively by 2045. The longer we stay as business as usual, the sharper that trajectory comes. And that's why when people start talking about we want a smooth transition, because our economic welfare at the moment is based off carbon emissions. And so the longer we stay at that state, all of a sudden, you need to basically stop what you're doing and transition awfully quickly, which is going to have economic disruption. So as you said, I guess it sort of theoretically makes a lot of sense. And in a perfect world, it seems quite simple to agree. But How do you actually design a policy to price carbon? And, you know, what is the price of carbon output? Yeah, so that's that's the million-dollar question. Oh, it's not even the million-dollar layer. Glad we're asking the hard-hitting questions here. (laughs) Well, no, I was going to say, if you actually look at the real numbers, it's it's like the trillion-dollar question. There's trillions and trillions of dollars at risk if we don't get this right. So what the Kyoto Protocol tried to do is just say, this is the global target and we're just going to throw all the emission permits out there and we're just going to let the market basically do what the market does and you know, supply and demand, invisible hand works out the right price and away we go. But of course, that's not how the world works. There's so many different interests, there's lobbying, there's political ideology left and right. It's not as simple as that. If we put a carbon price on the coal industry, for example, today, we'll lose you know, all of the jobs that the coal industry currently has and the oil industry and all this sort of stuff. So we end up with all these caveats happening. 
And what we end up with, and then you get political ideology, the left use it to attack the right, the right use it to attack the left. They don't actually care about getting an outcome. They just want to get into power the next election under their ideology. So what started as a great idea, as a global kumbaya moment, let's go and save the planet, has just been absolutely destroyed by a whole raft of different stakeholders and interest groups and lobbying and what have you. So we have a piecemeal approach where we do have some people setting carbon prices around the world. So the best price, you know, if you look at New Zealand, they do have a carbon price. California have a carbon price. The biggest carbon emission trading system is the EU. So the best price to set a carbon price is to set a as broader coverage system and say every industry with every activity within this needs to have a permit to emit. However, then you've got to work out, you've got to regulate it, you've got to ensure that there's no double counting. So it does get quite complicated and that's where it starts falling over and starts to unravel and then, you know, under the European system, the price crashed when there was an oversupply of permits um, when economic activity went down but that's because emissions went down and then like, oh, but we need to adjust the price to go up and then you start getting meddling in the system or we don't want the price too high because that hurts people. So you can sort of see like, this is a very, very complicated process once you start getting interest group into play. And I know the way I've sort of explained it is kind of confusing because it is. So that's why we are where we are is what should have been a really simple process has just been eroded by all these different interest groups and caveats and ideologies. That's just where we are now. So what do we do next is basically the next question. Yeah, I mean, it seems like there's so many different factors at play there and, you know, even having different countries with their own policies and and budgets makes it really complicated given how global our world is. But, you know, you mentioned before that ideally under the Paris Agreement, they want to get to a 1.5 degree temperature rise scenario. What does a world look like at 1.5 degree temperature rise versus pre-industrial levels? But then what is a two degree three degree and four degree world look like and what trajectory are we currently on if we continue our current patterns if we walk out in a four degree world what are we going to see in the environment yeah absolutely so i'll answer this but there's a big disclaimer i'm not a climate scientist if i had my um head of technology and product ben mcneil who's a climate scientist data scientist oceanographer he'd be able to answer this in spades so he'll probably get embarrassed when i um try and answer it for him but The idea is that what they're basically saying, if we limit warming to one and a half degree temperature rise, not too much will change. There will be some differences, like we're already starting to see more intense bushfires, more intense drought, flooding and what have you, but it's manageable. It's not great, like we will still have some problems. When it starts getting to two degrees, that gets a little bit more intense, but what they start saying is at the two degrees levels, we're starting to get this idea where we can get what they're starting to call feedback loops, where you start getting in the Arctic or the tundra, permafrost starting to thaw, and you start getting methane getting released out of the system that's locked in the ice cores. It then sort of starts getting out of control, and then once we get to three and four degrees, that's when you start getting mass desertification of what was traditionally farming and productive land bushfires get really really intense or you'll start getting parts of you know like miami new york bangladesh low-lying areas will basically just become flooded like the sea level will take them over there's basically at three to four degrees we do not want to get to that point because whilst yes we in australia you might think of it ah three or four degrees i could live with an extra three or four degrees i quite like summer a couple more hot days i'll just turn the air conditioner on That's not the point. It's what it then does to the whole economic and societal system 
you know, you think about what COVID's done and the mass relocation it's sort of having on people. We'll have mass refugees everywhere, you know, put pressure on systems where we haven't thought about them before. Yeah, sure. There'll be parts of the world that will actually do better. Greenland may become a slightly more hospitable place. There will be slight advantages here and there, but it'll be mass change within our system and some places simply will become uninhabitable. And we'll have a much more violent weather system. So we don't want to go there. Now, I've probably butchered that even any climate scientist is listening, but that's the general thesis behind it. Yeah, I think it just puts into context some of the real risks of carbon. You know, even yesterday I was being asked by a client, what even is the science behind climate change? Do you believe that this is real or is this just a way of spending money? And I think the science is pretty clear that there's some devastating consequences for the environment, for the climate, if a temperature degree up to four degrees, you know, even three degrees becomes our reality. That's a really, really important point is, so having been in this market for 15 years, up until about five, three or four, even three years ago, people were still debating the science going, yeah, but is it really, you know, the science is uncertain. And of course, the science is uncertain. We're forecasting something into the future. But the science is uncertain around its uncertainty analysis. What it will actually do, it's dead certain about. It will be within this range because we're basically putting more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. We're creating more energy into the atmosphere, which creates more violent weather patterns, which then creates a whole heap of other things blow-on effect. I understand the science to a relative. I'm not an expert in it, but it's like people have now got to that point where they're just like, actually, we need to do something about this because it's not about it's good to be green. It's just like this starts having economic damage to your investments. And that's where I think the change has happened over the last couple of years. Yeah, definitely. There's been a shift in thinking and and I guess less non-believers, particularly as we've seen some pretty devastating weather events around the world, you know, bushfires and floods and even here in Australia over the last 18 months. But it sounds like it could basically impact every aspect of the economy. Like I'm thinking changes to agriculture, complications with insurance. I mean, how do you get insurance on on a house when the likelihood of it being impacted by storms is severe? Building and residential zones, all that might be, you know, prone to weather events. So how can we avoid this greater temperature rise scenario? Yeah, so the only way realistically to avoid greater temperature rise is to limit the amount of carbon emissions that we're emitting into the atmosphere. And this is why I got into carbon and markets 15 years ago was, well, when I first had them explained to me, I saw one ton was worth 50 cents, another was worth $50, finance nerd, arbitrage. Let's look at that. But I then worked out when I read into it, our whole economic welfare, it can be denominated down to carbon. So we have to understand what we need to do around reducing tons of CO2, but we can't just do it from a green lens. We can't just say we're doing it to be green and we can't go to zero tomorrow. But if we look at it from a lens of we are, and unfortunately we have, well, this is my view of how how we can get it to work is if we match it up with the economic consequences and put a monetary value on it, we can actually get the system to change because really that's all finance is. Finance is just risk and reward. How can we get the best return on our money? So if we don't do anything about carbon right now, economic welfare will be fine for a little bit longer and then it will fall off a cliff and there's a big problem there because we're going to have to make a change. But this is not about going to zero tomorrow. We need to start to work out which are the most productive, I guess, or most valuable industries right now that are emitting carbon that we are happy to continue to let emit carbon and which ones do we want to stop earlier so we can get this nice transition so the ones that are easier to abate, they can work it out and then we can get this nice glide to be saying, okay, those that 
are basically producing low value goods, low value, low margin, or you know, have a problem the market's not really using them, they shouldn't be emitting tons of CO2 because at the moment they're doing it for free. So there's an uncosted item on their balance sheet. If we can somehow work that through the system, which is actually what we're trying to do with EMI is help investors understand if we brought this carbon constraint in, which companies are the ones that need to do the most work and how quickly do they need to do it. We're matching up the economic consequences of now of what could happen in two, three, four, five, ten 10 years time because you don't necessarily know when the carbon constraints are going to come in, but we know what they need to be doing. So investing is about managing that risk. So carbon is obviously, as you've just mentioned, there's so many different elements that sort of add into it. And I feel it's definitely getting a lot of attention from regulators. You know, we've seen China launch their first emission trading scheme and we've seen a net zero emissions target for 2060. You know, Australia actually had a cap and trade emissions trading scheme implemented under the Rudd government, which was due to commence in 2020, but that's being repealed. I guess from your perspective, do you think it's likely that we have some kind of carbon trading scheme in the future? And do you think we stick to that going forward or do you think it continues to change? Are you talking globally or within Australia? Perhaps within Australia to begin with. Well, yeah. So technically, we have a carbon trading scheme in Australia. Technically. It needs more press, clearly. (laughs) Yeah. And I might just indulge for a couple of minutes as to how we got to where we did in the Australian market and how a lot of countries have got to where they've got with the lack of carbon pricing is, as I said, it's political ideology. We had the Rudd government introduce one. Well, it actually wasn't the Rudd government. Rudd tried to, didn't quite get the support because Tony Abbott saw an opportunity to you know, depose Malcolm Turnbull and pull the support away by using the right ideology. We don't want to support big government on a carbon pricing And so Rudd lost his support. I think Julia Gillard then went to the election saying there will never be a um, carbon price under my government. Then she only got minority government, so she had to do a deal with the Greens and had a carbon price come in. But of course, then trying to sell that to the electorate was extremely difficult. So Tony Abbott used it again as a political wedge to say, look what they've done, carbon tax, electricity tax, price is going to fall in. Again, right using it as an ideology to attack the left saying, you don't want big government, it's a big problem. The left trying to use it as an ideological tool to say, we don't want big multinationals ruling the world. Most of the big carbon emitters are big multinationals. So we got into this big back and forth within Australia and we weren't trying to solve a problem. So we deposed it, but there's this seen need to be doing something idea in what's going on right now. The coalition didn't scrap everything when they scrapped it. They scrapped the overall cap and trade, but they left the crediting mechanism, which is the Australian Carbon Credit Units or ACCUs, which um, as you so kindly mentioned in your intro, I actually created and traded the very first one of them back in 2012 when I was working for a landfill gas company managing their carbon portfolio. That system still exists. And so the government's current policy is the government will buy back carbon credits from developers. On top of that, there is what we have this is called the safeguard mechanism where all the big polluters and carbon emitters in Australia, they do actually have carbon targets, but the way the carbon targets are set is they are so high and they're based on past history that they're effectively never really ever going to breach these targets. Every now and then one might breach it, but they're breaching it and they need to buy like 100,000 CREP ACCs and they're emitting 100 million tonnes. So it's a rounding error. Technically, there is a carbon trading system in Australia. It's just extremely weak. There is a voluntary system that's coming in. The reason I sort of indulged and sort of gave that whole flavor of what's gone on politically so far is it sort of gives an idea of what might happen future. 
I don't think we will see a proper carbon trading system in Australia in the next five years because the political appetite's just not there. We've lost, if you count opposition leaders as well, political leaders we've lost, Turnbull, Rudd, Gillard, Rudd, Tony Abbott. We've had five, six or seven leadership changes over the last 10 years and they've all come down to carbon policy because it is such a divisive political issue. So we need courage from our political leaders, but I just don't think we're going to get a proper carbon pricing system put through over the next five years simply because they know that it's just too easy for the opposition to attack. I feel when the investors start picking this up and the market start doing it and we've already got the momentum, then, yeah, I think we may start seeing it because the electorate will start being more comfortable with it. And to be honest, that's actually why we're trying to do it with Emmy. is, yes, government can help support this, but if we can get the market along the way and sort of make it a much easier decision for governments to make, they're not going out on a limb. It's just like, no, no, we can see it. All investors are across this. We've got this covered. We now want more certainty. That's when I think we'll start seeing more carbon pricing come in, but it's actually going to need to be the private sector that starts moving this and understanding it before we get government stepping out in front of the effectively the curve or be at the coalface, so to speak. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And to your point, I mean, people aren't waiting for the government response anymore. I mean, we've seen that every state in Australia has a net zero emissions target now. Companies themselves are setting net zero emissions targets. So, for example, BHB and South 32 Investors are putting pressure on companies to commit to net zero and are are divesting or voting against companies not making enough progress. You know, you've got a number of significant asset manager clients with Emmy who are looking to assess their carbon risks. So society is, I guess, really making the first move now. And I guess you've kind of explained why that is. So it might be worth moving to what a carbon offset is. And, you know, from what I understand, It's basically where you can purchase a unit of emission reduction or avoidance to offset against your own emissions. And I guess that can be a little bit controversial. So why is that controversial? And is it the way that companies should be getting to net zero by, I guess, offsetting their emissions profile? Yes, it's a really, really good question. What is a carbon offset? That's, uh, you know, how long do you want? When I went back to uni, when I first got into carbon, my honours thesis was on voluntary carbon offsetting and what the best way to do it. So, you know, I can talk forever. I won't because I'll bore everyone. But basically, carbon offsetting is the reason it came about was if we go back to as we're explaining what the carbon market is, is it's to say, well, that example I gave it, if we set the limit at 2000 tonnes, there's only 2000 tonnes that can go into the system or it can be emitted. However, from the environmental and climate perspective, if we can abate further so say we can actually reduce emissions by 100 tons we actually create extra room within that carbon budget carbon budgets are about what we can emit if we can remove certain extra emissions out we effectively create room so when compliance carbon markets were being set up there was this idea of how can we incentivize emission reductions that aren't necessarily covered by the schemes because not all carbon is easy to cover it stemmed out of the Kyoto Protocol was basically they said, well, developed world, we're going to put carbon limits on you. But the developing world, you know, back in the 90s, I was like, you're probably not quite there yet, but we still want to incentivize you. So what the developing world could do is they could reduce their tons of emission under a carbon, what was then it was a clean development mechanism. And that was effectively the very first, one of the very first carbon offsets. You have a project methodology that you can follow. And if you reduce tons of CO2 under a specific methodology in a robust manner, audited, et cetera, et cetera, you then get carbon offsets or carbon credits, which you can then sell back into a compliance market. So an emitter 
can then say, okay, well, I can't buy a permit, but I can, you know, from a global perspective, I'm reducing tons over outside of my remit, but it's got the same benefit. And the whole idea is it's supposed to put price incentives on, you know, like reforestation and other things that are not emitting activities, but we can go and do to reduce tons of CO2. That is the premise and it works really well if you've got a solid compliance market and a solid system around what the offsets and credits mean. Offsets are only as good as their methodology and as I mentioned earlier, like some offsets 50 cents and others is $50 or credit and it all comes down to what is the robustness and rigidity of what you're following. If it's a really, really flimsy methodology and there's not many checks and balances and you create this credit, how do we know that it was actually a ton of CO2 that was reduced? Because CO2, we can't measure it. So, this is where we start getting into this world of well, how good is it a credit or an offset? Can we trust it? So you want to be going for like, you know, the best quality credits you can. There's this term of additionality. People just say, well, we reduced a ton of CO2, therefore I get a carbon credit. But if that ton of CO2 is going to be reduced anyway in the business as usual course of action, then it shouldn't actually be getting a credit because that would have happened anyway. We only want to be giving credits to things that are additional. These are only some of the complexities at the very high level. So you can sort of start to see how this discussion of offsets. Some people don't like them at all. Other people are big believers. They can help us. If you can get it right, they can help, but they're only complementary. So yes, if you can't necessarily reduce straight away, they're good as a complementary item. But if you simply rely on offsets only to get to your net zero journey, A, you're not necessarily doing the work underlying it. B, you're not having system change. And C, eventually those offsets will be coming incredibly expensive if that is where we get to so you are going to be left holding going well hang on i haven't actually reduced my underlying it's like an interest rate hedge right if you've got a huge amount of debt and you just say oh yeah interest rates are low forever and we've locked interest rates in for five years we don't need to worry about managing our debt in five years time your hedge comes off and you've still got the same amount of debt but interest rates have now gone through the roof you're left incredibly exposed and it's kind of that idea with offsets they help but they're not the end solution so michael obviously there's infinite number of positives around all this and perhaps you just touched on it with the offsets but what are the other key risks of carbon trading and is there anything investors need to be aware of that are not often you know spoken about in the common world yeah so in australia some carbon credits are a financial instrument and require an afsl to do certain things on so that sort of gives you an idea of what are the risks around. So if you as an investor want to get involved and say, hey, I think, you know, I have a premise that carbon is going to become more and more valuable. I'm just going to go and buy a carbon credit and put it in um, an account and just, you know, watch it grow in value. It's not that simple because there's lots of different carbon credits. Like any financial product, effectively, you need to understand what the rules, how it's structured, what the T's and C's are of it. So with a carbon credit and carbon trading, you know, you might hold a vintage, but then all of a sudden that vintage isn't used in the market, or you might hold a specific type of carbon offset, but then all of a sudden a piece of regulation comes in and says, actually, you know what, we don't want to take that offset anymore. There's a whole gamut of information and things that people need to be aware of. As I said, from a theoretical point of view, carbon trading is a great idea and it works, but the devil's in the detail. So, if as an investor, you want to get into carbon trading, I'd love to have a chat with you. Like, you know, I love what I do. It drives me every day. Like, you know, I'm a finance carbon nerd, but also it sort of aligns with everything I do outside of work, like being outdoors, but it's not something you can just jump in. So as investor into carbon markets, do your research like any other financial, do your research with regards to as an investor, with regards to how that impacts, you know, equity markets, bond markets and all of that. 
that's a secondary and sort of a tertiary issue. And that's more around understanding what do you think markets are going to do and how are we going to become carbon constrained? And I'll put a little plug in for EMI. That's effectively what we're trying to help investors with EMI is what are the consequences for basically global investment markets around this carbon constraint? I think you kind of answered three of our questions in <laughs> in one there. I guess the final technical question or I guess carbon question was just, you know, you've had some really good press around EMI. You were in the AFR recently. You've got some great foundation clients who are using the platform. How do investors use it and how does it contribute to, you know, the investment decision in relation to carbon risk? And I think you did touch on that, but any other detail you wanted to provide on EMI would be useful. Yeah, so as we've sort of discussed, this is all around a transition process. It's not about going to net zero tomorrow. It's about the world needs to transition. EMI starts at the individual company and corporate level where we can basically effectively look at how much financial resilience does a company have to a carbon-constrained world. So if we went to a carbon-constrained world tomorrow under either one and a half, two or four degree world, there's different ramifications as how much carbon can be released into the atmosphere. And then that flows on to how sensitive or how resilient is a company under those scenarios. So what we first do is we say, how would a company be affected today if that happened? Then we can go forward and say, okay, and we know what these budgets are going to continue to do going forward. And these are the trajectories that the company needs to be on with an absolute carbon perspective to be able to stay on a one and a half, two or four degree trajectory. And it's all data and objective driven. What that allows us to do is build up portfolio analysis So fund managers, they can say, okay, well, we've got 20 companies in our portfolio. What's our overall portfolio risk? Well, it's it's a very hard question to to answer. But if you've done the bottom-up analysis, if you know what all your 20 companies look like, which Emmy can provide, you can then do your overall portfolio exposure because it's, you know, you can then understand your weighted risk exposure. And then you can start getting an understanding of what your portfolio trajectory starts looking like. So that's what Emmy is about. It's about using the hard data of what is going on now. It's not necessarily about giving the final answer because anybody that tells you they've got a final answer around carbon and climate is wrong because like any investment, there's uncertainty around it and there's a risk band. But what we help to do is we effectively get people 70 to 80% of the way there to understand, effectively take the blindfold off around a lot of this complexity, get them to a certain point which they can then make further decisions because a market is a market. Everyone's got different assumptions. Everyone's got different risk appetites to then overlay those specific risk assumptions to then say, okay, do I want to continue to hold or not or divest this company or do I want to engage with this company because, yes, they have a bit of a problem right now, they're exposed, but we don't see they're uninvestable because we can understand what their strategy is going to be and we can track them and we're going to engage and be responsible stewards of capital and actually make this transition occur. So that's the whole premise of EMI. Well, Michael, I think it's safe to say you've given a fairly comprehensive overview and I know I've probably learned tenfold of my prior knowledge around the role of carbon, especially in the equity markets. And, you know, I really love these discussions of when there are still multi-trillion dollar questions out there to be solved. But before we finish, can you please give us your top career tip? It sounds like you've had a variety of knowledge amongst different sort of areas and clearly you're now very focused on the carbon space. What's a, a piece of advice you'd provide to all our listeners and myself and Emily? I had that question asked a couple of times over the last month or so. And the best career tip I got was before I actually started my career. Work out what you don't like and work out what you like. Because if you do what you like, it makes work a lot easier and you're actually driven to do it. And when I was younger, I'd been told that, you know, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life, all this sort of stuff. You know, I was like, yeah, yeah, it makes sense, whatever. Yeah, yeah, rah, 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 all that sort of stuff. 
but it's easy to sort of say that when times are good and it's just like, yeah, yeah you know, I'm on a decent salary and I'm doing pretty well at work and I'm progressing and all that sort of stuff. But it's when times get a little bit tougher that if you're doing something that you actually really love and you're passionate about it and you're engaged, that you'll actually keep going. And so, you know, yeah, Emmy's not always been smooth sailing, you know, it's been four years and some of it was hard slog. And if you're not doing something you love, when it gets hard, you'll give up. It's a lot easier to give up. Whereas if it's something you're really passionate about and it really helps, the one piece of advice is do what you love. And in early on, don't worry about making money because if you do what you love, you'll actually be more likely to master it. And if you're really good at something, you will make enough money. I only learned about Simon Sinek about six months ago and he talks about find your why. And I was like, oh yeah, that's what I've been told to do for the last 15 years is like just do what you love is effectively finding your why. But it's an iterative process though. There's no magic bullet. You don't just do a formula and go, this is my why. It's like you've got to do things you don't like, do what you do like, but always ask questions around if you're doing something that you don't like, why are you doing it? We do have to do things that we all don't like, but are you doing it in this way that you want to be where you want to be? So that's probably the best piece of advice is yeah, just try and do what you love or what you really like and it makes things a lot easier when things get hard. Yeah, I definitely, I can definitely relate to that. And, you know, following on, even working with people who you like as well can make a huge, huge difference because you, you spend more of your life with them than probably your partner or anyone else in your life. So it's critically important. But Michael, that was such an interesting conversation. Carbon is, you know, there's a lot of jargon out there and I feel like people don't really understand it probably as <laughs> as a correlation to how important it is. So it's great to have you on. Thank you so much. And, you know, Emmy is a great business that you've set up. I've used the platform. I think it's a fantastic tool and I can't wait to see its success going forward. So thank you so much again for joining us. Thank you, Michael. No worries. Thanks for having me, Emily and Clooney. 